After marking hymn number 89, as Brother Adam has asked us to do in light of the invitation that we'll sing in just a few moments this evening, it might be fair for us to recollect John 17, verse 17, as we begin our lesson tonight, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. As you and I look into the blessed last book in all the Holy Bible, the 66th and final revelation from God, we can understand the greatness that we've already seen in that book. This will be the ninth lesson in our series of lessons from that tremendously significant book in the Holy Scriptures. We have been reminded of the symbolic nature of so many of the things presented therein, but also how pertinent the, script, the spiritual lessons are that you and I can take from that book each and every day. Tonight, as we begin to look by way of introduction, might I ask you to recall with me some of the things that we may well state at the outset of our lesson. We are still in the midst of that tremendous drama that had begun to be unfolded in chapter number 4, when there God on the throne and on His right hand, or in His right hand, was a significant book, sealed seven times with writing on the front and back side. The only one found worthy to take and to loose the seals and thus reveal the contents of that book was none other than the Lamb. And wasn't it John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, John 1.29. Of course, Jesus was the one who was that worthy one there referenced. As he took that book and began to loose the seals, we remember that the first six of them, as we studied the loosing thereof, revealed to you and me the terrible character of warfare and carnal conflict. We saw in that, in fact, the tremendous consequences of warfare. Famine, pestilence, difficulty, and so those things related to death. We also were reminded of persecution. Souls beneath the altar crying, O Lord, how long? Revelation 16. Finally, we saw the wrath of God exhibited upon those that were unprepared and unworthy. Revelation 6, verse 17. When the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? We also noted in chapter 7 the sealing of the servants of God and the specific nature of that number. Finally, we came to appreciate in chapter 8 the loosing, or should I say, the blowing of the first four trumpet judgments, all the while reminded that God has a specific means of sealing or preserving those that are His own. But in the same way, His judgment poured out upon those that do not receive the promises thereof and are disobedient to them. Having said all that, though, that does bring us tonight where we should be prepared to begin, which is the blowing of the fifth trumpet. Now, that begins in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, and to that we shall turn our attention somewhat shortly this evening. But it did seem to me a bit fair to begin the lesson tonight with a historical overview in which we strive to bring together not only the first four trumpet judgments, but also the first six seals and try to match the character of these with what we appreciate from the point of view of history. It is not usually my approach to devote the most part of a lesson or a sermon to the character of history, but in light of the events that we've studied, the loosing of the six seals, the blowing of the first four trumpets, I thought that'd be a fair way to spend about the first half of our lesson tonight. And thus, with that in mind, let me again caution you that we should readily appreciate that these things, it says, were shortly to come to pass. Revelation 1, verse 3, as well as Revelation 22, verses 7 and 8. Given that they were to shortly come to pass, 
we remembered that that did not mean that their fulfillment ultimately, finally, and totally would begin only shortly before the Lord's second coming, but rather that it had meaning for those to whom John originally addressed this book, and that's been now about 20 centuries ago. With that said, might us review then the first things that we learned about the loosing of the seals and ask about the historical significance of some of them. Would you take then a short journey with me in re recollecting the matter of the first six seals? Seal number one, when the Lord, when the Lamb loosened that first seal, what was it that John saw? He saw a white horse, and the rider had in his hand a bow, and he was specifically told that he was to go forth and to conquer. Now that last reference reminds us that this had an aspect of military characterization, and that was the conclusion that we drew earlier. But let's be a bit more specific. Given that this had to do with that persecution underneath the Roman Empire, we notice that specifically a white horse symbolizes victory in warfare, and hence a time of victory was to be appreciated even by those that were the enemies of God, namely those in the empire at Rome. If we begin to ask, did that come to pass? Indeed it did. Shortly after John had penned this book in the last decade of the first century, a new emperor came to, the, to rule in Rome. He was in the line of Nerva, and following him was Trajan, and then on to the next three. But in that line, the Roman Empire enjoyed its greatest military victories of all time. The empire's extent was dramatically extended, and not only that, that was a gigantic era of tremendous peace in Rome. Things were well. In fact, sometimes in history our students learn that that era in Roman history is called the Pax Romana. It is the time of Roman peace. Things were gigantically well. The Roman emperors were strong and powerful. No enemy could stand before them. This apparently was that time representative of the white horse and the first seal that had been loosened thereby. I make note on the screen the time period in history. In fact, characterized that of about 96 to 180 A.D. Those emperors in that time indeed had a very peaceful rule and reign and conquered all that opposed them. But notice the second seal. We are learned in the second one that the color of the horse that John saw was exceedingly distinct. It wasn't white, now it was red. And this red horse we understood was such that it represented bloodshed, which naturally followed that of warfare. But might we also take note of the fact that there was something else said by the one to the person riding on that red horse. Looking back to Revelation 6, these were the words. Verse number 4. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that was sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and they that should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Isn't it significant they were to kill one another? A description is thus given of a time of great internal conflict, civil war, if you will. We might again observe that this horse followed the first, and we might thus ask historically, did that occur? Following that time period of about 180 A.D., there was in fact another type of emperor, another line of Caesar that came to the throne. As I've listed for your consideration, he is the first leader in that line, Commodus, and for several rulers thereafter, 
it exactly corresponded to what the Holy Scriptures had here indicated. Rome began to fall, to crumble from within. Civil war became, in fact, rather rampant, and we might even observe that by the character of how many rulers Rome had. Though there had been only five in the previous century, beginning at the line of Commodus, as I mentioned, and continuing until the year 284, that was, in fact, not quite a century. They had 30 emperors. One by one, they were slaughtered by others who were desirous of having the crown. And as that infighting and civil war became rampant, it severely weakened the empire. That would again seem to be the thrust of here the riding of the red horse. Rome suffered greatly from the bloodshed that was to be appreciated internally within that empire. But what about the third rider, the third seal as it was loosened? In Revelation 6, verse number 5, it says, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and behold, lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. This time the horse was black. Earlier we came to realize that one of the consequences that seems to follow warfare militarily is that of scarcity and famine and want. And by the fact that the balances were there in hell, that also was a part of the understanding here. But might we know that that indicates, and might we ask, was that corresponding to yet a different time in Rome? Given that that first conquering horse, the white one that we observed, led to these others, it would seem that the ruler of the Caracalla, as he began to reign and rule, exactly corresponded historically to what we're appreciating here. In fact, from 200 to 240 A.D., there was a tremendous need for necessities amongst the Roman Empire. The civil war, then the infighting that had already begun to take place, had made various items and commodities sufficiently expensive that they were very difficult for most everyone to have except the very wealthy. Exactly symbolic of those balances that we had noted being held in the hand of the rider of the black horse. But having made note of them, we rapidly come to the fourth one. The fourth seal being loosened, there the horse was pale in color, the rider was death, and that which followed close by was Hades. In fact, now we might ask, it would seem that darkness, a very, very great time of affliction for the Roman Empire was under description. Did that come to pass? I would suggest to you that not only perhaps did it, it would seem to match very closely to the reign of Galenius, from 240 to 280 A.D. Internal times in the Roman Empire then were disastrous. The previous civil war had left the empire virtually in shambles. Now, it did hold on in the sense it wasn't completely destroyed at that time, but nonetheless, times were not good. The severity and death that came to be represented there amazingly would lead one to say that it would seem that these things spoken of by the loosing of the seals corresponded historically to the issues that we've seen in these rulers and in their times. That does not, of course, set aside the spiritual lessons. The fact that we have seen that these were God's judgments upon that empire that opposed His people and that did not hold their hands and encourage them in the light of the gospel but rather tried to stifle its spread to, in fact, crush the gospel effort. God is here making a resounding note that Rome, too, will be judged for her opposition to the gospel. 
reminding us of even Daniel 4, verse 25, when it says, God rules in the kingdoms of men. Even Rome, you see, would come to judgment for the fact that she opposed the will and the providence of God's way. What about the fifth seal? As we come to that one, we laid great emphasis upon the powerful aspect that martyrs, those who had lost their lives for the cause of Christ, beneath the altar cried, How long, O Lord? Just and true shall the cause for which we died not be vindicated. We observe that there God had a great lesson for those of that day when he said that there shall be others like you who also will lose their lives for the cause of Christ. But the time of the end is not yet. In that, we learned our need to be perseverant, to in fact remain faithful and true even under trying circumstances. But as we turn historically, might we know, was there a time of intense and dramatic persecution of Christians by Rome? Now, there had been several such periods under Nero in the 60s. In fact, that's when the Apostle Paul lost his life, when Nero had him beheaded because he was a Christian. Later in the reign of, in the 90, in the last century A.D., another tremendous period of persecution. But historians tell us that perhaps of all of them, there was no period of persecution any more intense than the one under Diocletian, starting about 300 A.D. In fact, so severe was it then that Diocletian had as his main idea as emperor to return Rome to her former greatness of many years earlier. And in his mind, that greatness was due to the Roman gods that they had worshipped in that earlier day. And thus, he set out on one of the most intense persecutions of Christianity, perhaps the most intense that the world has ever known. Christians were slaughtered and killed by the numbers we can see that that particular period from 303 to 320 A.D. lasted a little less than 20 years. But the intensity of it, the greatness of it, perhaps the very thing shown to us by the opening of the fifth seal. It would be fair to say at that point that we do come to the sixth seal. We learned a lesson from there about the nature of God's wrath ultimately poured out upon those that oppose Him. But might we ask, the terminology used in the opening of the sixth seal, if I might just read again one of the verses in that Revelation 6, verse 12, and we might even read verse 13 as well. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there came a great, black, a great earthquake, and the sun became black as the cloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. That sounds so vivid and so dramatic. And we might well ask, there is description there of revolution. Things will be tremendously turned about from what they formerly had been. One of the ways that we can appreciate that is that our virtually identical terminology is used twice in the Old Testament, and it had to do with great truth tribulation in the sense of revolution amongst empires, once in the book of Joel, once in the book of Isaiah. On this occasion, was there a time in Rome when that happened? I would suggest that it does seem to match the scene of the reign of Constantine from 320 to 350 A.D. When Constantine came to the throne, there was a dramatic revolution that took place. 
days prior to him, as we noted under Diocletian, Christianity was severely and dramatically persecuted. But Constantine, due to the fact his mother was a Christian, not only embraced it, but made it the religion of the Roman Empire. That point should not go too quickly bypassed by you and me. Here was an empire, and I make note of this beneath the observation to, to, to Constantine. Here was an empire who now for well over 300 years had been the singular opposing force to the movement of Christianity. But yet now this one who had been so opposing to it embraced it, and in fact it was the imperial religion of the empire. That was a dramatic revolution in matters spiritual, wasn't it? To make that observation is to say that God's providence had ultimately surpassed and ruled just as we understood it would be. But can we not make two other comments? What does that teach us about those who would have the audacity to oppose the will of God? His overruling power will absolutely win at every hand. It always has and it always will. You and I would be wise to humbly bow and submit to His way and let Him rule and lead our lives in the way He would have it to go. For we will be blessed not only here, but also hereafter. But perhaps one other lesson. This one again, more historical in nature. The Roman Empire did split in 395 AD into an Eastern and a Western Empire. That will be significant as we come to the next observation in our lesson this evening. At that point, we thus noted, having looked at the opening of the six seals, chapter 7 came up next for us. We noted there was a sealing of the servants of God, but then, in chapter 8, the blowing of four trumpets. Historically, is there any significance to the blowing of those trumpets? Just as there seems to have been significance to the loosing of the seals and the order that was to be seen in them. Well, these facts seem to have a great deal of historical interest in them. Let me share them with you over the next few moments tonight. As chapter 7 opened, there was one comment made prior to the sealing of the servants of God. We laid some emphasis upon it, but we did not approach it from the perspective of the lesson tonight. Let me read verse 1 of chapter 7 again, if I might. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. These angels were holding the winds, and the next verses inform us that they were to be held until the servants of God were sealed. Now, we noted the sealing of the servants of God in chapter number 7, but the, old, the book of Revelation does not revisit the blowing of those winds. What might they represent? Historically, to what might they correspond? May I say, offer the following historical observations as possibilities for the meaning of those four winds? First of all, the blowing of the first trumpet. It would seem that the trumpets and the winds, in a way, the first four go hand in hand due to their description. If that be true, consider with me this. The blowing of that first trumpet in Revelation 8 is described in this way. Verse number 7 of Revelation 8. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And there was cast upon the earth, and the third part of the trees was burnt up. And all green grass was burnt up. We immediately see a reference to the land. 
And we made note of the fact that that earth, that land that's mentioned, suffered tremendously. It even symbolically references that a third of it in terms of the land area was consumed or burned up. Historically, did Rome, after the time, say, of 400 A.D., suffer any difficulties in which the land was especially under conflict and under a period of great affliction? May I suggest 409 A.D.? In that year, we encounter historically the first of those great invasions of the Roman Empire. Notice that, as I might mention there, the Goths, a rather barbaric group of people from what we would recognize today as the area about Germany, proceeded to move southward and recall that by this time the Western Roman Empire had been greatly weakened by internal conflict and civil war. As these Goths marched against the Roman Empire, they had tremendous success. But it's a bit interesting the way that that success is described. As I point out to you, in their wake, they almost invariably burned the town to cinders. Did you notice it was fire mingled with hail and blood? There's the fire. In terms of the land area and the hail, Recall that in the Old Testament, when that plague, the seventh plague, brought upon Egypt, that's exactly the way it was described. Hail and fire mingled one with the other. Isn't it significant that as these Goths came against the Roman Empire, they killed very, very many, and there's our reference to blood. But it's also, again, to be noted, they left the land in their wake virtually cleaned to, to its absoluteness, virtually destroyed. That was one of the hallmarks of their way of warfare. Though note then that as the Goths came against them, that Gothic invasion was rather successful, but it was just one of many that were to follow. For after all, consider with me the second trumpet sounding. In that, as that trumpet sounded, our description in Revelation 8 was this. A great mountain, as it were, was cast downward into the sea, and immediately what did we observe to happen? This seems to have more reference to the sea, that is, the waterways, than to the land. Was it the case that there was a period in Rome's history when even this came to pass in that fashion? The answer again would seem to be yes. For after the Goths had had their way with Rome, the Vandals, again a rather barbaric tribe from the area perhaps to the east of Germany, also began to march southward, and having already been weakened as Rome was, she was not able to send back these vandals. And I might add that these vandals is the very historical source of the word vandalism that you and I use today. They were barbaric, cruel people. As they came against Rome, some notes that I've made, their initial attack was on the sea. For well over half a millennium, there'd been no power able to match Rome on the sea but yet the Vandals ultimately did it. They became the ones who would rule the Mediterranean. And as these Vandals had their way with Rome, isn't it interesting, isn't it amazing that the bloodiness to be associated with it again accords to the blowing of the second trumpet and its description as it's given. But also there was a third trumpet that was blown. This third one, you and I noted, was described as it were a star named Wormwood that fell from heaven and on the earth, and the rivers and the sources of those rivers was again contaminated or consumed. Does there correspond historically an incident that seems to relate to that one? The answer again is yes. I suspect this next individual you and I have heard of at some point. 
In 440 A.D., yet another group, a rather cruel group of people known as the Huns, began again their travels in motion from northward to southward. And as they came against Rome, their leader was named Attila. We've perhaps all heard of Attila the Hun. And again, he had his way with Rome. Perhaps in regard to the affliction to be appreciated, and again, that the word wormwood means affliction and the awfulness and unpleasantness associated. Oh, indeed, how it was wormwood to Rome when Attila marched southward. When he came, he again almost greatly destroyed the city, but for a while he uh, allowed a bit of refuge, if you will. And by paying large sums of money, Attila was happy to take their money and at least let the empire last for a while. But that brings us to the blowing of the fourth trumpet. This one, as you and I noted in verse 12 of Revelation 8, the sun, the moon, the stars were each said to be darkened, the third of them. And as that darkening was appreciated, we noted a significant event was being described. Historically, that brings us to 476 A.D. Another Germanic troop moved southward. They were the Herculi, is perhaps the more correct name for them. As they moved southward under their leader, Odoacer, they crushed Rome finally and completely. The Western Roman Empire was absolutely defeated. That gigantic darkness then that came upon them, the death that was to be appreciated, seems to have been prophesied many years earlier by Christ through John. This is what would happen to those who would oppose the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That great Roman persecutor ultimately thus would in fact be such that it would be destroyed and God's cause would be vindicated. But it is significant at this point that we are not finished. That's only four trumpet soundings. There's three more to go. Revelation 9 will then proceed to call us to think about the blowing of the fifth trumpet. And might I make note again that the very last verse of Revelation 8 had listed three woes. These next three would even be more significant than the first four. Now we've already noted that the Western Roman Empire has already crushed and fallen. But the Eastern Roman Empire at this time is still standing. What might we learn about it? Will this empire also ultimately stand, or would it too meet the fate of opposing the character of God and His providential will? As we open the fifth, or as we allow the fifth trumpet to sound, let's turn our attention to that one. In the first 12 verses of Revelation 9, and those verses you and I shall read together in just a moment. As we begin that, let us recall that we again are interested in the symbolism of this great last book in the Bible, the Apocalypse. We've learned by now that those things described are not to be taken literally in most instances, but are symbolic for the truth that God is revealing. And with that idea stated, let us then turn to Revelation 9 and let's read together the first 12 verses. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. 
And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it. And shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were as it were crowns of gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months." And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. What an impressive description. It captivates our mind, it captivates our thinking to listen to this description from the very character of Christ through John to you and me. We are now ready and to ask, what about this fifth trumpet blowing? First, I would ask that we think about some of the descriptive words that have been used throughout those verses that you and I just read. First of all, we notice in verses 1 and 2 that this star, as John was here able to appreciate, was, as it were, fallen from heaven. And what's more, we notice that we can learn something from verse 1 about the identity of this star. We might first guess that now that's not to be taken literally. It's not as though a large meteor or some other comet crushes into earth. For in fact, this very verse says, I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth and to him. So apparently this star represents a man, for it says to him. But not only that, to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. So this star, as John had seen it as it were, fallen from heaven, represents a man who had significant authority. Keys belong to those with authority, for they use them to open and to close and to shut and to reveal. Thus we're speaking about some man of authority. But let us read further. We notice in verse number 2, as well as in verse number 1, that reference is made to a bottomless pit. That alone whets our appetite to recall the symbolic character for all pits that you and I know of have some bottom. But here is one that is said to be bottomless. We will encounter a bottomless pit again in Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. On that occasion, that will be the place in which Satan is cast. We learn another valiant lesson. This bottomless pit thus has reference to the source spring of evil that place in which evil or iniquity or ungodliness springs forth. But let us also read in addition what came out of that pit once the key was used to open it. Verse 2, there arose a smoke out of the pit. Apparently some great effect of evil or ungodliness would spread once that bottomless pit had been opened. We're well aware that when you open the door of a wood furnace, for example, that the smoke will rather quickly fill quite often the room. Well, that influence of this evil thing made reference to here will be a rather impressive one indeed, will it not? But let us also notice that in verses 3 and 4, something else came out of this pit. There came out of the smoke locusts. Are those locusts literal? 
there are many ways in which sometimes the description and the discussion is made that indicates that it, that is to be taken literally. Might we observe that we would not expect that to be, for they come out of smoke. Locusts aren't born of smoke. They, as living creatures, if you will, of the animal kingdom, come out of the natural reproductive area of locusts. Perhaps that's another significant event reminding us of two Old Testament passages. Locusts take the principal stage twice in the Old Testament, once in the book of Exodus. As the children of Israel were shortly to be brought out of Egyptian captivity, one of the plagues brought upon the Egyptians was that of the locusts. In that eighth plague, how dramatic it was when they came from the east, and the text says that God caused a wind to blow all night from the east. And in the morning, these locusts were so vast in number that they consumed nearly everything in Egypt, according to the text. That leads us to remember that those locusts were a judgment from God upon this nation, namely Egypt, who refused to accept His authoritative will and to let His people go. But secondly, those locusts take a center stage in the book of Joel, one of those minor prophets in the Old Testament. In fact, one of the central themes of that book is this. There was a ter terrible locust plague that had come on Palestine. Joel's message is, God, through this plague of locusts, is reminding you of your need to turn unto Him, for they had failed to turn to Him quite recently to that time. And that was God's judgment upon their impenitence and upon their unfaithfulness. Thus, it would seem these locusts are another aspect of the judgment of God upon a nation unwilling to bow the knee in submission to Him. Perhaps that Eastern Roman Empire, we shall see a, bit, a little bit later in our lesson. But let us look a little further in this description. What else is revealed to us? We notice something interesting about these locusts. This too identifies the fact that they were not to be taken literally. For we understand a locust eats plants. It eats things that are, eats things that are green. According to verse 4, these locusts were specifically commanded not to eat anything green, any tree, anything that had to do with a plant. Rather, what was the only thing that they were to torment? It says in verse 4, only those men which have not the seal of God in their forehead. Clearly, these were no ordinary locusts. The thing to which they tormented, the entity to which they turned their attention was humanity, specifically those not sealed as the servants of God. That alone is a significant observation, isn't it? In fact, as we keep that in mind in a moment, how long were these locusts to torment? Verse 5, five months. That's an oddity, isn't it? A locust that comes, remains five months, and then moves on. If they ate everything in their path, five months would be far too long for them to have consumed it. We again appreciate that five months maybe has another symbolic significance. We shall rather interestingly ask, might that significance be a prophetic one? Might we recall that in Ezekiel 4, verses 5 and 6, the month was in fact there referenced, interestingly, in which a day represented a year. If that be true, five months with each month using 30 days would in fact be 150 days. But if that's a prophetic reference, we might ask about a period of time extending 150 years and ask if there was any significance to that. 
and that we shall do in just a few moments. Otherwise, notice that the locusts described for us in verses 6 and following as those like horses prepared for battle. Furthermore, crowns like gold on their heads, faces as those of a man, but hair of a woman, teeth as it were of a lion, breastplates of iron. Furthermore, sound of wings as of chariots and tails like unto scorpions. All of that now is descriptive of perhaps that we can begin to imagine has a military reference. Horses are in battle, and scorpions identify the terribleness and the sting of those things associated with battle. In fact, perhaps one final observation. Historically, would there be a time to which that might refer, or that seems to match the various elements of the prophecy? I would suggest that if we were to proceed in order, we are already past 476 A.D. Maybe we can turn our attention to some of the clues. Again, in the Old Testament, the locusts came from the east. They came from the area known as Arabia. Could that be a reference here? Is God, through the prophet John, revealing that, again, a time would come when even this oppressor, namely Rome, would have to face an enemy from the east, from Arabia? From Arabia, you see, we find many of these descriptions match almost perfectly. Let's take just a brief look at just a few of them in the short amount of time we have remaining tonight. First of all, locusts. That part of the world, in fact, is known for the hotbed of locusts. When they came upon in the day of Joel, that's where they came from. When in the book of Exodus they arose, that's where they came from. And even to this day, you and I can read about the terror that locusts bring to that part of the world. A scientific article written not many years ago now makes great detail about one of these known plagues of locusts from the Arabian area as they sweep into Palestine. Perhaps we are learning one, one other means of relaying to us that this has to do with a powerful force arising in Arabia. But what's more, notice that the shapes of them were like horses. You and I can appreciate that as one looks closely at these locusts prepared unto battle, it says, this would be a military-type force, but it wouldn't be any ordinary military. For remember, they did not kill the enemy you would expect them to kill. Remember, the locusts didn't harm any green thing. It was only those not sealed. What might that signify? Well, could it be the following set of observations? In looking at the Arabian host, who was the principal one who may be that star that John saw that fell from that area? Was there a leader from Arabia who brought his forces against the Eastern Roman Empire and led to great difficulty? I would suggest that not only could there have been, there was. Here's his name. You're well aware of one named Muhammad. Starting in about 600 A.D., in a vast arena of teaching, he was able to convince many, many individuals who accepted the doctrine he taught. And as that movement grew, he ultimately was strong enough to where Rome, even the Eastern Roman Empire, suffered mightily underneath him. He led his forces against all that was in Palestine, all that was in Egypt, all that was in that part of the world, and conquered all of them. And that was all in less than a hundred years. Once that movement began in 632 A.D., that movement, of course, is one we still are well aware of today. 
that movement, Muhammad, of course, the designer, the founder of that movement known as Islam, Muslims, if you will. As the Arabs accepted that teaching and doctrine, the movement thereof described, ultimately the Eastern Roman Empire and its capital at Constantinople suffered mightily under the followers of Muhammad. The thought is then, perhaps as we consider the other descriptions, they were known for their usage of horses in warfare. They did not fight on foot. They were known for wearing yellow turbans and hence the crowns of gold perhaps. They were known for their ferocious and fierceness, not with an interest per se to just kill for the sake of it, but rather to make converts to Muhammad. That seems to fit that description that these locusts didn't take the attack of the enemy you would expect. They didn't hurt the green thing. But what else? Notice they had hair like those of a woman, but face like a man. They were known for their long beards indeed, but they were also known for their long hair. Again, perhaps fitting each one of those descriptions. Maybe again we might ask about the timetable, the five months. Here it was expressly noted in the Greek text that this torment was to happen five months. When this Arabian movement, the Mohammedan movement, began in 632 A.D. in its fierceness, it is to be noted that it did, in fact, expand dramatically. The time came once they had conquered sufficiently, though, that they relaxed their affront. And by 780 A.D., a relative time of peacefulness and calm was well understood and known. 780 minus 632, almost exactly 150. Could that have been God's way of informing us the nature of this movement that one more time was to come against Rome, that was to be an affront to that movement for opposing the character of God's gospel? That religion that we still thus know of as the Muslim or Islam religion has, of course, millions and millions of adherents around the world. Those who profess allegiance to Muhammad, pray five times a day to the city of Mecca, all the while, that maybe reminds us that could this have been God's forewarning about the nature of events that would begin in the first century but would have lasting consequences for centuries thereafter. As we move through the book later in chapters 15 and 16, we will revisit from other perspectives and see other ways that maybe that's exactly one of the things that God was reminding us of. I would, as we close our lesson though tonight, remind each of us that though these seem to be grounded in history, there is nonetheless a dramatic teaching that there was security for those who had been sealed as servants of God. And in fact, Revelation 9, verses 20 and 21, the one that Lucas read for us earlier in our service tonight, might we ask, what was the thrust, what was the reason, what was the meaning behind God's allowance of these terrors to come upon men? And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands. It is ever God's desire for all to be saved. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. And he gives me an opportunity to turn from their way of sin, accept the saving opportunity through his Son, and to enjoy the goodness and lasting benefit of life here, as well as to look forward to the joy and bliss of hereever. Those ideas lead us to a personal question tonight. What about your life and mine? Having seen that God is in control of the affairs of humanity, 
May we appreciate we need to be faithful, ready, and always so that we can understand no matter what the onslaught on earth may be. We know that as children of His, we have a far better home somewhere else. For this world is not our home. Sometimes we sing a song where that's the very message within it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Are your treasures laid up there? For it's truly a maxim that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If our heart's directed toward things here, then we haven't made ample preparation for the hereafter. But if our preparation is such that we've laid up treasure hereafter, oh, the beauty and wonder of the promises of God on our behalf. This evening...